Hi, hello, how are you? Welcome to the season four premiere of the Big Rhetorical Podcast. I am your host, Charles Woods. I hope you've been taking care of yourself during our time away from each other these last few weeks. I'm sure that's easier said than done recently. Much history has been made in the months following the polarizing, secure election in 2020, particularly in the last 12 days following the insurrection at the Capitol by white supremacist terrorists incited by Trump. I must admit, I've had to avoid the urge to devote this entire season premiere episode to this topic, but I'm sure a lot of us are tuned in and might take this opportunity to tune out for just a moment. Plus, in this moment when we are surrounded by so much devastation and pain, collective and real physical, mental, and emotional pain, there are still things to celebrate. On January 5th, Stacey Abrams and her Grassroots Playbook for Georgia hit Pater in both Democratic senatorial runoffs bringing the Senate to a 50-50 tie and giving Democrats a slight advantage starting on January 20th. While there is certainly precedent for Georgia leaning blue, and those moments have proven to be few and far between and to occur when the Democratic candidate has strong Southern roots. What an accomplishment, really, after so many years of organizing and courage Thank you, Stacey Abrams. On January 16th, President-elect Joe Biden officially announced that Director of the Office of Science and Technology Policy would be elevated to a cabinet position for the first time in history. While the director of this office will be Eric Lander, another prominent leader in the realm of science and technology, Alondra Nelson, will be on a special science team. Uh, as Deputy Science Policy Chief. Nelson, who studies science, technology, and social inequality, is an exceptional pick for this role. And while I'm a bit biased here because her imp- of her impact on my own research, this is a strong indication that the Biden team is making informed, intelligent decisions about the people leading this country. People like Linda Thomas-Greenfield and Cecilia Rouse. In two days, Kamala Harris will be inaugurated as the first woman and the first woman of color vice president in American history. What does this mean for our culture? It's certainly a moment of celebration, one for exhaling and reveling, one for thinking about and commemorating the lives of so many women, black women, who came before this moment, who worked and continued to work not just for diversity, but for inclusion. In a relatively short time, as far as empires go, this country has relied on the resiliency, fortitude, and courage of women like Rosa Parks, Henrietta Lacks, and Kamala Harris to get us where we are supposed to be and where we can go and will go in the future. So exhale, but our next breath must be a deep one because there's still so much work to do. On today's episode of the Big Rhetorical Podcast, I talked to Dr. Gavin P. Johnson. You're basically just, you know, throwing your hat into a whirlwind and hoping you'll land somewhere. And I got really lucky to land in Memphis and I had Christian Brothers, which is a small university, um, smaller than Nichols is. Uh, Christian Brothers has right under 2,000 students, but it's a teaching focused university, which um, has been really rewarding for someone who really likes to think of themselves as a writing teacher first. I usually use the, uh, the hyphenated teacher scholar to describe myself. Um, and I always put teacher first. 
Dr. Johnson, he his, is a teacher scholar specializing in multimodal composition, queer rhetorics, writing assessment, and digital activism. He currently works as an assistant professor at Christian Brothers University in Memphis, Tennessee, where he teaches courses in cultural rhetorics, professional communications, and writing. He completed his PhD at The Ohio State University, where he served as co-associate director of the International Digital Media and Composition Institute. He earned his MA from North Carolina State University and his BA from Nichols State University. His research and service received national recognition, including the Gloria Enzaldúa Rhetorician Award from Four Cs and the Cairo Service Award as part of the NextGen Listserv startup team. His research is published or forthcoming in College Literacy and Learning, Composition Studies, Computers and Composition, Constellations, Patho, Pretext, A Journal of Rhetorical Theory, Teacher, Scholar, Activist, and various edited collections. Dr. Johnson is a proud first-generation college student from Southeast Louisiana. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Gavin P. Johnson. mentioned you're from southeast or southwest southeast louisiana Louisiana, so i guess on the new orleans side of the state is that right yep and i live uh an hour and a half south of new orleans okay well i didn't even know there was anything south of new orleans (laughs) that's what you were about to say wasn't it i'm sorry (laughs) ruined your joke (laughs) (laughs) that used to be my like um interesting fact when you like go around the room and say what your interesting fact is it used to be um i live in a part of louisiana that you think is all water um so i live on um i'm originally from lafouche parish um on by lafouche um um it's a hour and a half south of new orleans um and about 30 minutes um from the the coast like the beach area. Um, you can actually get to the coast in the water like in five minutes in a boat. <laughs> um, the other interesting fact for any of my literature friends, my American lit friends, um, is in the novel, Kate, uh, Kate Chopin's novel, um, oh, The Awakening. Right. Um, the, the beach that plays into the ending of that novel that's the beach that I went to as a child. So that's kind of how I situate myself is like South of New Orleans where the not great stuff happens in Kate Chopin's novel. (laughs) So what was it like growing up there being five minutes away from the beach? You know, I'm from Alabama. I'm from the South, but let's not paint that picture. Like all the South is the same, right? Southeast Louisiana is its own thing. So how was growing up there? Um, it, I, I've done a lot of thinking about this because I was definitely the little, uh, the little queer kid who wanted to get out of his hometown. Uh, no, no, um, no playing around there. And so I, I left um, South Louisiana. I didn't leave until after undergrad, and I did my master's in North Carolina, and then I went to Ohio for the PhD. Um, and since then, I've thought a lot about, well, what did, what did it mean growing up in South Louisiana? Um, because I spent so much time wanting to get out <laughs> that uh, I never really thought about it and appreciated it. But, you know, it's, I, I think a lot now about the closeness of family and like how close my family was. Um, I was very, very lucky to have a very supportive family. Um, even coming out, I came out in high school, um, a very supportive family, um, a family that, you know, had big holiday meals, um, enjoyed, um, being outside. Um, so it, it was, it was a, 
you know, it was a really good life, I think. Um, my family was, is, not was, is working poor. Um, but in some ways, you know, we had a lot going for us. I don't know. And I just, um, thinking back on it, it's, it's kind of amazing to think about. And Southeast Louisiana, like you said, is very specific. It's very different. I've been all over, you know, the South and into the Midwest and all over the country in general. And Southeast Louisiana is really, really different. It's, um, you know, primarily French and Spanish, um, historically, um, uh, very Catholic, but like Catholic with a <laughs> Catholic with a twist because of like Mardi Gras and all of that kinds of fun stuff. So yeah, it's um, it's a place that I really look at fondly now and want to think about how I can um, do work to preserve some of that. And that actually leads me back to thinking about me going vegan. Because I've been thinking a lot about how do I preserve those kind of uh, family traditions, but make them, um, update them in ways that um, fit the new um, kind of life and the new effort that I try to live by. So um, that's something I've been thinking a lot about and will probably be something I write about in the future is this uh, preserving a cultural rhetoric while kind of per embracing progressive um, ideals, ethics, whatever. So you spent your whole life, you said you didn't leave until after your bachelor's degree, and that means that you lived through Hurricane Katrina and that you yep. weren't displaced after Hurricane Katrina or you chose and your, those around you chose to stay. Um, I guess this, sorry, but this is more of a personal question. I was like, how did that impact your life, your existence? Uh, what what were the people around you doing? I mean, I really just can't imagine. So I think that this is an excellent opportunity for me to learn. Yeah. Um, so um, I live, like I said, I live in the coast south of New Orleans, which sounds like it would have been hit harder than New Orleans. but actually. My area is very um, um, uses levees and has other like protections in place to help um, diminish, not stop, but diminish the damage of hurricanes. So um, Hurricane Katrina happened, I think, the third week of my first year of high school. So. <laughs> so like I met my teachers and then we were out of school for a month. Um, you know, we, I don't think leaving was ever an option or a question for my family. Um, and so what ended up happening is we kind of just went through another hurricane, which hurricanes are just kind of a way of life in South Louisiana. Um, and, but what I noticed and what I grew up around was this discourse about Katrina and New Orleans. And, um, so seeing New Orleans, which I had grown up going to New Orleans, like, you know, going to the city for the, the zoo for class trips, you know, stuff like that. Um, so seeing New Orleans kind of devastated, you know, in some ways that pushed me towards more radical politics. Um, and I think that's what came out of Katrina for me was seeing and really understanding for the first time um, what systematic issues look like where... Um, you know, my family, like I said, working poor but white, was able to stay and rebuild, whereas there were um, black families and brown families that were displaced and were moved. And, you know, it's not for any reason other than they um, 
didn't have the support systems in place. Um, so that I think that's part of what kind of radicalized me was growing up in Katrina, but not experiencing Katrina the same way that everyone sees it on TV. Like I was also seeing that, but also seeing it in person and being able to not really being able to understand it, but really seeing, you know, there's something here that's happening that I don't really understand. And as a curious person, as um, a person who has always been interested in history and kind of um, social studies, quote unquote, was like my subject, my subject in school. Um, there was all kinds of things that I started thinking about a lot. and. Um, trying to learn about and yeah so i mean i think that that's how i think back on katrina is like this situation that obviously was terrible and like i was out of high school for a month you know didn't have electricity for a few weeks um but my family and my community bounced back um whereas uh, other communities and other families didn't and so I've always kind of had this question of like, whoa, why is that? It's not like we were rich. So, you know, you couldn't like pass it off as like, oh, y'all were just rich. So y'all could bounce back. It's like, no, we were, you know, living on food stamps, you know, paycheck to paycheck for my single mom. So there was something beyond like the, the surface level economics. There was something deeper that uh, I've always tried to understand i guess moving forward so what's your hometown there in ella and louisiana yeah my hometown is la rose louisiana la rose yep l-a-r-o-s-e so um if you think of the french it would be la rose um it is on bayou lafouche um which um you know i I really love it. You know, I'm, uh, I haven't been home in over a year, which is the longest I've ever been away from home at this point. And it, it's starting to feel like <laughs> starting to feel it, especially as we get closer to Christmas and like, Ooh, God, how far is La Rose from Thibodeau and Nickel state where you went for your bachelor's degree? Yeah. So it's 45 minutes, um, up the road, <laughs> up the road. Uh, you really just follow Bayou Lafouche up um, 45 minutes. Um, so it was close to home, um, which is not what I wanted. I uh, When I applied to go to college, um, I wanted to get out. But again, because, you know, me going to college depended on scholarships and those kinds of opportunities. And Nichols had the best opportunities for me. So for uh, a few years, I was dead set on I'm going to go to Nichols and then I'll transfer out. But then I found community at Nichols and never left until I graduated. Well, I graduated, but <laughs> but um, stayed and did my four years, but really did a lot in those four years um, that set me up for I think set me up for this career that I'm in now. Um, but yeah, 45 minutes from my mom's front door to my house in Thibodeau. And you got a BA in English. And I, I think you're right. Um, I have to say, you, you got in the Nichols State University Hall of Fame. And yep. I think that's a really cool accomplishment that... Look, I mean, I've been doing, you know, 60, 70 of these interviews. I've never seen Hall of Fame on someone's CV. I have to ask, it, what is this about? <laughs> and listeners, such, Gavin is like bashful. I can tell about talking about this, but I'm going to press him a little bit. <laughs> it, it's such a weird thing. Um, so the Nichols Hall of Fame is reserved for the top 10% of a graduating class. Um, it's by invitation from the president. Um, and part of what I was brought in for and inducted for was I was 
the vice president of the student government. Um, I had a pretty good GPA. Um, I was on um, university committees as an undergraduate student, which um, which I look back on now and I'm just like, God, why did they let me do all of that? Um, um, I was the editor of the literary magazine and the president of the English Society. So I was just a whole lot of everywhere um, and really was doing um, the work of trying to make Nichols a better place. At least that's how I like to frame it for myself. Yeah. Like I said, those first two years I wanted out of Nichols um, because Nichols to me always was just like the college of the road that, you know, 13th and 14th grade of high school. You know, most of the people who I went to high school went to Nichols. Um, but somewhere around the end of my second year, um, I really started to find community um, with my English majors, but also in the student government. Um, I started be becoming really interested in the kind of um, mechanics of the university, which I'm still very interested in the mechanics of the university. Um, and there were just openings. Um, because it was a small school. It's a, you know, it's a very small school. It's, um, it was about 6,500 students when I was there. I think it's up to about 7,000 now. Um, so there were lots of opportunities for the kid trying to prove himself. <laughs> um, interesting fact about Nichols, um, in Rhett Complan, um, Beth Bokeh, the writing center, you know, the eminent writing center scholar also went to Nichols State. So Beth and I uh, have bonded a lot of, about that. And um, I, I always just think it's super, super funny because I didn't know what rec comp was um, in undergrad. And then I eventually took a seminar uh, in writing center studies and read Beth's work. And Beth Bokeh, and Bokeh is my partner's last name, and it's obviously very French, and I was like, hmm, and did a little bit of, you know, uh, sleuthing around and found out that Beth went to Nichols as well. And so I had the opportunity to meet Beth uh, over Twitter, and then we did a an RSA um, seminar together and have just become really good friends um, bonding over two kids from the bayou just like going into ret comp, <laughs> which we just think is really funny. And, but also makes a lot of sense for the kind of like common sense questioning that is kind of very pervasive in South Louisiana culture, this very like suspicion of things. Though suspicion seems really negative. I think curiosity is a better word. I like to describe myself as curious. Well, the curiosity, obviously, is something that's afforded you many opportunities, specifically to get your master's degree. So I, I wonder, when did you decide to get your master's degree, and when did you decide to go to NC State? Yeah, um, I think I knew pretty early that I wanted to get a graduate degree. Um I think the first time I remember articulating it was to, um, I was in um, a, a first-year writing, the second course in a first-year writing sequence, but the honors version. And I kind of articulated to my professor, like, I'm really interested in doing this thing as a, like, be a professor. I knew for a long time I wanted to be a teacher, but I realized that I didn't want to um, work in high schools. I didn't want to work with children, um, but I wanted to have like the uh, intellectual space to think and think with other people. Um, so pretty early on, I was like, oh, I'm going to go in, um, get a graduate degree. And um, for a long time, I thought that was to be in literature because I thought that's what 
if you had an English BA, I thought you got a literature MA and that's just how it is. Same, um, same, yeah. <laughs> um, only I don't really like fiction that much. <laughs> I don't like Same, same, fiction. yeah. <laughs> uh, but then I learned that I could do pop culture stuff with English. So I was like, oh, that's really cool. So I kind of steered myself in that direction. Um, some of the stuff I did um, later, like in my senior year, looked at like um, feminism and Lady Gaga, um, which is right when Lady Gaga was kind of really blowing up was when I was writing all these papers. Um, so I was really interested in like cultural critique and uh, pop culture. And one semester, um, a new department chair came in who was a retcon person. And I didn't know what retcon meant. Um, but I was, um, as the, the editor of the literary magazine and president of the English Society, which is just like the English major club, um, you know, I was having, I was talking with this new department head. Um, and so she started telling me about what she did, how she studied, um, how people use language, how people um, wrote about themselves. She was um, really kind of traditional retcomp, um, looking at how people write about themselves and stuff like that. Um, so I got really interested, and I did an independent study with her. Um, and... So after a while, I realized, oh, wait, I don't have to do a literature degree. Yes. <laughs> Great. Um, but I can still do this like kind of cultural critique stuff and kind of grounded in this idea of how do people write about themselves? How do people talk about themselves um, in a digital age is always kind of been my thing because I grew up MySpace, Tumblr, social media. Um, so how do people communicate through digital stuff? And right around that time is when Chris Anson was the chair of four C's. And so it was one of the names that just kind of came up and my professor, uh, Dr. Barker was just like, you should see where Chris Anson's at. Chris Anson's at NC State. Um, so that's kind of how I ended up there. Um, I applied a whole bunch of places and got in a few, but NC State, um, seemed like the best option for me. You know, it came with a, a teaching assistantship, which I thought would be really cool. Um, and then I showed up in, at NC State in Raleigh, North Carolina, which remains one of my favorite places in the world. Um, and those two years were super formative. Um, I learned so much in the two years um, of my master's. Um, if anyone is asking for my advice, I think a terminal master's is like an excellent choice to set you up um, moving forward. And I know that our field is moving closer to like um, the master's en route and uh you know straight admit to phd but that terminal master like i just would not be the same person if i hadn't spent those two years in raleigh was it always the plan you said it was always the plan to get a graduate degree was it always the plan to keep going past the master's and and get the phd now you moved again you've lived all over the country uh you moved from raleigh to columbus and went to the ohio state university uh how did you wind up there what, what what's the story and yeah. how was your time there the um the plan was definitely to get a, a master's and you know a master a terminal master's is only two years and so i was still energized and ready and was like let's keep going uh so i applied to phds um by that time i had firmly kind of planted myself in retcon 
I, you know, at NC State, I was really, really lucky. They had some superstars. They still have superstars there, but they had some superstars while I was there. Um, Susan Miller Cochran was the WPA. Um, Carolyn Miller was there teaching rhetorical theory. Um, Chris Anson was there teaching composition theory. So, you know, I, I was really got a chance to learn from some of the like great minds of the last two generations of retcom scholars um, who really pushed me and said, you know, you kind of get this, like you're good at this, keep going. Um, so I applied to graduate school, um, got in a few places and um, Columbus and Ohio state kind of just um, seemed like it was the place that I needed to be, um, which um, I say that because I wasn't originally going to apply to Ohio State for the PhD because I had got rejected at, for the MA PhD two years earlier. And so I was like, they already rejected me. They don't want me. Um, it's cool, whatever. Um, but, you know, on the insistence on, from uh, Carolyn Miller, she was like, no, you need, you need to apply. If you're going to do this, if you're going to do digital work, Cindy Self is still there. Like, you need, to, you need to apply here and just see what happens. And I got in. Um, and they were, all, they were welcoming from the get-go. Um, recruitment season was kind of happening right around seas. So I went to my first seas in Tampa, Florida. Um, had a really great time, felt super important because I was being recruited. Um, and at one of those events, I met Cindy Self and I met Nan Johnson. Um, and they can, they convinced me like, no, you need to come to Ohio state. Um, I was really worried because I had kind of moved towards like queer theory and, um, Queer rhetoric at the time, and Ohio State didn't have anyone doing that work specifically. Um, still doesn't have anyone doing that work specifically. Um, but uh, Nan Johnson, you know, feminist uh, rhetorician uh, historian, was like, "Oh, you know, you and I can figure this out. We can do this." And I trusted her, so I packed up and went to Columbus, Ohio. <laughs> um, my time at Ohio State was really, really wonderful. Like, um, I've been lucky. Uh, I recognize that graduate school is really, um, um, really difficult for many, many people uh, for a variety of reasons. And I was lucky that I only had to deal with the stresses of being an academic. I didn't have to deal with all of the other kind of stresses just because Ohio state is a, a very large um, program, a large institution. So I was kind of insulated from some of the other stuff. Um, but also being at Ohio state, you know, though, I remember thinking that first semester I was, you know, taking a full course load. One of those courses was with uh, Cindy Self. And I was like, God, this is what graduate, like, this is what people talk about graduate school being difficult. Like, not that my classes at NC State weren't difficult. They were, they were very challenging intellectually, but I could, I got through them and I felt really good getting through them pretty easily. Um, and I got to Ohio State and I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> um, so that, you know, that kind of set the tone of we're not we're not playing over here. You know, you're really you're at Ohio State and you're being trained to be a research scholar and teacher. And so, you know, that's what I had to adjust to was, oh, I'm not just, like, playing around and trying to figure out this cool situation. It's like, okay, you have signed up to be 
a research, uh, a researcher and a teacher, and that is what you are going to do. And that is what I did. <laughs> Would you like to join Charles in the Big Rhetorical Podcast? The podcast is booking for next season now. The Big Rhetorical Podcast offers participants the opportunity to contribute to ongoing conversations within our disciplines and beyond. This record of conversations eventually will be a digital archive with the potential to impact the knowledge making in rhetoric, writing studies, and technical communication, as well as adjacent fields. Do you have a new book coming out? Are you hitting the job market this cycle? The Big Rhetorical Podcast wants to talk to you. The Big Rhetorical Podcast core ideals are similar to a community-based writing project, with an emphasis on inclusivity and localizing knowledge and in strengthening relationships among peers. Make sure to check out our back catalog of episodes, as well as listen to our new podcast each week wherever you listen to your podcast. If you have questions about the Big Rhetorical Podcast, please submit a form at the website www.thebigrhetoricalpodcast.weebly.com. You can also find the Big Rhetorical Podcast on Twitter at the Big Ret. Follow the podcast on Facebook or email us at thebigrhetorical@gmail.com. You've gotten to move back closer to Southeast Louisiana, back to the South, not quite home yet, but to Memphis. And you are an assistant professor in the Department of Literature and Languages at Christian Brothers University. Um, You've just started, I guess this is the end of your first semester at Christian Brothers University. Uh, I was in I, I love Memphis, so I'd love to hear what you think about Memphis and then also Gosh, how was this first semester? Um, I don't even know how to fucking ask that question. <laughs> I can only imagine. I'll have to beep that out, but I can only imagine how you're going to answer that question. Yeah, uh, I got really, really lucky because, you know, going on the market, the market is a volatile, chaotic place. You're basically just, you know, throwing your hat into a whirlwind and hoping you'll land somewhere. And I got really lucky to land in Memphis, so back in the South, closer to home. Um, And uh, what was really lucky about that is my partner had lived in Memphis for two years. He did a a graduate degree at the University of Memphis in uh, flute performance. He's a musician by training. So we kind of knew Memphis. So it, it... in some ways felt like a homecoming, coming back to the South, coming back to Memphis. Um, and that has been wonderful. We Memphis has treated us really well the last, what is today? Today is the 16th, so it is exactly six months since we moved to Memphis. So, it, you know, it's been wonderful. We love Memphis, obviously, um, and like every other place in on earth right now, at least every other place in the United States right now. Uh, Memphis is not uh, in full force, but it's still been a really wonderful place to kind of transition to um, and move and kind of really set up some roots, which uh, the thing about graduate school is you know that it's going to end. Like graduate school will end in four to five years. Um, a PhD at least. Um, so, you know, those four or five years in Columbus, I was always like, okay, well, what's next? What's coming next? Where do I have to go next? Dear God, am I going to end up in a frozen tundra somewhere? <laughs> or am I going to end up, where am I going to end up? I got really lucky. I ended up someplace I wanted to be, um, a mid-sized, smaller city, um, but it's still a city in the South. Um, 
historic character, all these kinds of things that really piqued my interest as a person. Um, and at Christian Brothers, which is a small university, um, smaller than Nichols is, uh, Christian Brothers has right under 2,000 students, but it's a teaching-focused university, which um, has been really rewarding for someone who really likes to think of themselves as a writing teacher first. I usually use the, uh, the hyphenated teacher-scholar to describe myself. Um, and I always put teacher first. Um, so yeah, this first semester at Christian Brothers, <laughs> it, you know, I lucky I can't complain. Um, I came into a department that was very happy to have me because I was filling, you know, I was coming in to support the two other retcomp people who had been running a a, a program. Uh, a major and the writing program by themselves for a number of years. So I was coming in and being able to support them and that work. And so they were really happy to have me here. My department chair, um, Karen Go Lightly, God bless her. I, I feel so supported by her. Um, when everything was going down, cause Christian brothers didn't, um, didn't go complete 100% online this fall. I believe we are the only university in Memphis, in the Memphis area that didn't go 100% online. I might be wrong about that, but I'm pretty sure we're one of the only universities in the area that held face-to-face classes. But my department chair very much was open to going to bat for us with the administration and saying, if we didn't want to teach on campus because we didn't feel safe or because we were concerned about student health, we were able to teach online. So I was able to teach my classes completely online. I did synchronous classes, so I met with students every week digitally. Um, via We used WebEx um, because, of course, we aren't using Zoom, but so cool. WebEx has actually gotten really, really great over the last day. Like, I don't know. Someone sent them some really good information because about halfway through, about halfway through the <laughs> semester, they they sent out an update and I was like, "Thank you." <laughs> it just made life so much easier. So you know, props to whoever did the update on WebEx in like mid October because it was exactly what we needed. But yeah, I mean, it's hard. This whole semester, I'm sure, has been hard on. Everyone. I have not talked to anyone who said, oh, this was not that bad. You know, it's horrible. We're living through a damn pandemic and a politically tumultuous time under global neoliberalism. So, you know, it's it, it's just shit cake on top of shit cake, really. But I have been really lucky to have a pretty good first semester. The students here, um, what... One thing that I love and really sold me on coming to Christian Brothers is that um, it is a extremely diverse school. Um, it, um, I believe it's 60% non-white. A, a DACA, um, they support DACA students openly, um, financially and um, politically, though it is a, a Catholic school it is a lasallian school and so it follows the lasallian tradition of education which believes that everyone deserves and is entitled to a full and comprehensive education um so it's you know 98 uh, percent of students here receive financial aid it's you know it's a it's a school that i think truly truly cares about students which is the kind of place that um, I didn't even know still existed, honestly, in American higher ed. Because I, you know, I had been at one of the largest schools in the country, Ohio State, which is a great school and does some really great things. But in all honesty, Ohio State is a corporation, like in all senses of the word. You know, you know, it's um, it's all about football and partnerships with other corporations and making money 
So to come to Christian Brothers, um, to this very small school that um, is actively trying to support its local communities. And, you know, Memphis is one of the only major cities that is in the country that is minority majority. I'm going to put air quotes around that, where the population is more minority than it is um, white. That this school is doing so much to support its local community really um, speaks to me and really, um, I'm, I'm so happy to be here. It's, um, it's, like I said earlier, as someone who sees themselves as a teacher and likes doing community engaged work, I, I really couldn't have asked to end up in a better place. Excellent. All right. I, I know that this is a audio podcast, not a video podcast, but just like your facial expressions, your movements, like there's passion there. I believe you. I'm so glad that you landed there. I really am. Um, let's talk about what you're working on. Uh, let's talk. <laughs> uh, I missed what you said there. Sorry. Oh God, what am I not working on? You know, I gotta say, you got a pretty long list of works in progress on your uh, CV. I have some things to choose from, but I think the thing I want to talk about is a a, a book chapter. Wait, or is yeah, uh, grades as technology of surveillance, normalization, control, and big data in the teaching of writing. Uh, because you're working with one of my favorite scholars, Esty Beck and and Les Hutchinson Campos, um, and this is going to be in their upcoming. Um, privacy matters conversations about surveillance within and beyond the classroom. Give us a little bit of insight about what this work is about, how you came to want to work on this, how your work and queer rhetorics and cultural rhetorics and in the digital, I guess it kind of makes sense how this kind of works into surveillance scholarship. I'm excited about this piece and want to hear about it. Yeah. Uh, I am so excited about this piece. I'm so happy. It, the collection comes out this month, I believe, uh, December 2020. Um, so it's finally coming out. Um, it's been a few years in the works, which is publication is slow. <laughs> um, but this is a chapter that's been really close to me and has really shaped a lot of my thinking and has shifted with my thinking over the last few years. It began, actually, you know, the earliest roots of this chapter were at NC State in a seminar that I took with uh, Chris Anson and Susan Miller-Cochran on writing program uh, administration. And I was really interested in the, um, the growing influence of data and data analytics in writing program administration and higher education in general. And what I saw was this move towards using grades as um, informative data points, um, which didn't sit right. I've always been a a good student, but not a naturally straight A student. I've worked and especially, you know, growing up, I struggled a lot and a lot of my uh, self-confidence was always kind of built on getting good grades and that kind of stuff. So the more I thought about it and the more I thought about, and when I started teaching, seeing students so worried about grades and seeing grades as like the be all and end all and how teachers and programs and schools use grades to talk about students to the point where we're not even talking about people anymore. We're talking about this is an A student, that is a B student. Um, And we really start using these as ways of controlling students. If you don't do this, you're going to get a C in this class or some, you know, those kinds of things, which I think for many of us have just become kind of the language of the university. I don't think many of us are actually trying to be malicious in it. And that's kind of where the surveillance kind of all kind of started coming into me. Because I I think, especially learning from Esty and from Les, I think about surveillance as, thing, as something that has become so pervasive that we don't even really realize that we are surveilling and being surveilled. 
And so for me, that's really what grades started to look like, this technology of surveillance where a teacher was surveilling and normalizing and policing students to meet a certain um, ideal, normalization. And then the reverse of that, um, where teachers are being looked at based on the grades their students produce, their students earn. So you're a successful teacher because your students are passing your class, or you're too easy because you're giving too many A's, or you're too hard because you're failing everyone. Um, so these are the kind of questions that started rumbling around in my head and thinking about how are these, you know, at the end of the day, subjective marks on a paper coming to really control people um, and the university in general. So yeah, that's what that chapter is kind of based around, um, trying to think about how we have in brain grades as this kind of discourse um, within I, I kind of go I kind of call out uh, uh, our field a little bit because our field has sidestepped the conversation of grades for many years we talk about assessment to try to absolve ourselves of great of the grade in the same kind of political terms but there were some, you know, there was some really good work in the in the 90s. Um, Pat Be- Belanoff, um, Kathy Blake Yancey, a few people in the in the mid 90s that were talking about grades in these terms. So I was returning to that conversation and also saying, oh, and by the way, it's gotten worse uh, because now we we're using digital technologies to to look at grading data in aggregate. And so we are abstracting even further. So there is truly in some places, in some writing programs, it's to the point where the data controls the the curriculum without uh, looking at what students are doing, what students need, what students want. So that's where that that piece is, and it kind of is, it it informs a few other things that I'm working on too. Um, that piece is kind of um, the the investigation into the problem and establishing the problem. Um, whereas I'm hoping some of the future work that I do is more solving the problem. Um, but yeah, I'm super excited for that entire collection. That's going to be. A collection that I think is going to be super important moving forward yeah. as we continue to think about the classroom and beyond the classroom and writing spaces as places that are surveilled. Yeah, I can't wait for it, to be honest, and see how it works in with my, my own scholarship and privacy and surveillance. Um, congratulations on that one, for sure. I'm super excited. You've got a, a couple of other things out there and a couple of other things accepted one of the things that is accepted is a manuscript at Computers and Composition. And the reason I wanted to bring this up is because this is where I first heard your name or first saw your name or then Twitter. I follow you on Twitter and stuff. So, But but your involvement with the, the next-gen listserv um, has – well, I can only suspect that it's probably been one of the most uh, rewarding experiences of your career. Uh, I don't want to put that on you, but I think it probably is true. How did you get involved with those folks? What is next gen for those that don't know? And what do you guys and what do you all talk about in your computers and composition manuscript? Yeah, next gen most definitely is something that I'm most proud of um, having accomplished at this point in my career. It's next gen is a listserv, but more broadly, it is a advocacy group for graduate students in rhetoric and composition around the world. Um, We are particularly interested in um, making space and holding space for graduate students, especially graduate students from marginalized communities, um, to speak and be heard within um, the field. We are kind of origin story, which is part of what we go through in the, the computers and composition piece, which 
I actually have to work on some revisions for that one. <laughs> That's actually on my to-do list for this week. Um, but for that piece, uh, we um, we talk, we go through our origin story, which kind of we popped up um, after one of the the garbage fires that happened on the WPA listservs, which seem to happen about every six months at this point. Um, it's probably about time. Maybe whenever this podcast gets uh, released. Um, but um, we popped up whenever a group of graduate students kind of inserted themselves into what was really a very racist um, and classist, sexist conversation on the listserv. And then these graduate students were basically silenced and told like, you don't know what you're talking about. And also you're not going to have a career in this field because you are inserting yourself into these conversations. And so that really um, pissed a few of us off. <laughs> so a group of us got together and was like, well, what can we do? And what kind of came up for us was, well, let's just make our own space. Let's let's make a space for and by graduate students. And so, you know, the the startup team, which I'm a part of, um, which includes Kyle Larson, uh, Lucy Johnson, Ashanka Kamari, uh, Virginia Schwartz, Sarah Dawn, um, Kristen Eccles, Lou Mirage, Sweta Banya, and Esty Beck as our kind of uh, faculty accomplice. Um, so we set up NextGen. And it's a listserv space that that is moderated, um, run by and concerned with graduate students. And the hope, I think most of our hopes for a startup team is that it continues to move forward with graduate students. Um, to be honest with you, this publication is my one of the last kind of really strong things that I'm doing with NextGen. Because I'm faculty, um, I support NextGen. I, you know, I will always support NextGen and the graduate students. But I and my startup team, um, the startup team, all really believe that it should be a space for graduate students. So, you know, we've ha we've held elections where new moderators have come in that are graduate students, and hopefully keeping that momentum forward. Um, and I think that's something that I'm, in some ways, I'm most proud of us for maintaining that ethic in some ways, because it's, I think, especially after we got recognition, you know, we got, uh, named recognition from, um, Rashawn, uh, Ashanti Young, when he was chair of C's, he gave us space. Um, there's the, there's a committee the next gen standing group that's happening at C's now. We uh, we were awarded the 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 service award by Kairos, and you know in some ways I think it would have been really attractive for the startup team to kind of just stay on <laughs> and say okay we started this thing it was supposed to be about graduate students but you know we like the name recognition but all of us. As we have moved into faculty positions, and actually Kyle Larson is the only um, original startup team member who is still a graduate student. And the rest of us, you know, we still support, we follow what's happening, but we don't assert any kind of control over it. Um, and that I'm really proud of that because um, I think you know, being an academic in many cases is so much building a reputation for yourself that it's really hard to let go of things that help you build that reputation. Um, and I think we see that in other spaces. I think, you know, not to constantly bash on WPAL, but I think we see that on WPAL where we have people who ran or dominated conversations there for the last three decades. Um, and many of us don't want to be, we don't want to repeat that kind of cycle. And part of, 
the the article that we're writing is about digital safety and creating this ethic of safety within NextGen, um, specifically talking about the tactical strategies that we hope will sustain NextGen, such as uh, collaboratively writing these kind of um, statements of support for international students, for um, for student for graduate students who are being mistreated by the the field or by their programs by um not only being that kind of advocacy space but also opening space for graduate students to just ask each other questions which is really what the listserv is is grad a safe space for grad students to ask questions um, and how to kind of prepare themselves to be a part of this growing uh, community um, so the article really focuses on digital safety and how to use critical digital literacies to um, to build infrastructures of safety within NextGen that hopefully will um, be maintained, but also, you know, open up spaces for other organizations. Um, you know, we we collaborate very closely with DBLAT, the Digital Black um, Lit and Composition Collective, which is a, a really amazing collective of young Black scholars who um, support NextGen and we support them. And, um, you know, it's what I'm hoping to see more of in the field, these, these organizations that are not in competition with each other, but really supporting um, communities and trying to make these spaces more um, coalitional. Yeah, that's the word that I kept thinking was coalitional. Uh, a coalition of journals and listservs and podcasts all doing this work to make the field and our communities better, right? One of the things that I think is so great about the Next Gen Listserv and a really smart move and effective move for our field is the creation of the international student listserv through NextGen. So I want to make sure that I mention that, and I'll tweet out some information about that with the episode. Gavin, what are you going to do this afternoon? Probably take a nap on my sofa. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Will there be Netflix in the background or a book on the coffee table? (laughs) I uh, am currently obsessed with the new Taylor Swift albums. Yes, my um, partner is as well. She mentioned yeah, it yesterday. So I've been listening to those kind of nonstop on repeat and finding different lyrics to like clutch my my chest to. <laughs> um, I believe yeah. I believe the word that my my partner used was just just genius about that new album. So. The the new albums are just chef's kiss um but yeah so i'm probably going to be on my sofa relaxing i because i am one of the lucky people um in my apartment um that gets to work from home i have also taken up the mantle of like community dog walker (laughs) (laughs) that's awesome (laughs) i love so much like if it could be my career i might just be a dog walker um so I have a few dogs that I need to go uh, walk later. So yeah, that's that's what I'm up to this afternoon. And then tomorrow it's back to writing because it's always going back to writing. <laughs> it is. Thanks so much for uh, carving out some time to chat with me. I was particularly excited. I am and was particularly excited to talk to you. And if we are ever allowed to venture out, to conference spaces, symposia venues, and the like. I hope that we can run into each other. I hope so, too. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Gavin P. Johnson. Chatting with Dr. Johnson was my first interview in a while, so I had to dust off my skills a bit. Don't be too harsh on me. As the Big Rhetorical Podcast kicks off Season 4, we want to talk to you. If you have a book, a project, an interesting topic to talk about, reach out to us as we're now booking guests into Season 5. 
You can find out more information about The Big Rhetorical Podcast at our website, thebigrhetoricalpodcast.weebly.com, and follow us on Twitter at The Big Rep. Leave us a five-star rating and write a review to help us enhance visibility on podcast platforms. Until next time, always be listening rhetorically. Thank you.